A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. The Parting Grass by Ian Doohake Builder without cards, sweet-voiced, sharp dealer Carrick Fergus Bernard, I'd heard him called first Though not born Bernard, or from Carrick Fergus But a refugee from pogroms in 60s West Belfast Here, relabeled bipolar, his house of no cards fell He couldn't leave his civil war as easily as names too long the handsome boatman under bare poles. He needn't tap the glass to know about the storms. I remember him fixing our front room windows, shuffling decks of glass from struts taking pains. I remember how utterly cold invaded my home until he made it just a picture in its frame again. Ian, where did this poem come from? It was very personal, Mark. Um, I knew Bernard, as I called him in the poem, although um, his name to his family was Brian. Uh, He was a singer, uh, very talented, very popular. Um, He had other problems. Um, It was, as the poem indicates, he was... Bipolar suffers from mental health problems. Mm-hmm. As that, he also, as many traditional musicians do, drank a fair amount when he was at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew his widow as well. And there was an event organised in his memory to raise funds for a scholarship for the folk music option mm-hmm. at Leeds College of Music. So I wrote it for that. So. Uh, and it was with Irish musicians. I was reading with Irish musicians, so it had a very specific context in terms of Irish music. So this would be a kind of a performance piece? Yes, very much so. And it makes references to uh, particular tunes that are important to Bernard. For example, The Parting Glass. That was one of his his songs. It was sung at his funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, Carrick Fergus is another um, Irish folk song, um, very, very well known. Mm-hmm. All over the world, yeah. you know. Uh, it, I think it was actually used at Kennedy's funeral. Um, oh. and, and that was his party piece, big, strong voice. Um, and within that, um, it was taking into account a particular audience. And I modified it since, hopefully, to make it more straightforward um, to a larger audience. Mm-hmm. But I still, wanted, I still wanted to do something to remember him by. And you've 
kindly shared with me a recording of Brian singing Carrick Fergus, so I will make sure we mm. link from that to that in the show notes. He had quite an extraordinary voice, didn't he? Yes, yes. Very, very powerful. Wonderful way of bending notes, you know. Yeah. Um, big, he's a big lad. Mm. Uh, big chested, so there was a lot, there was a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a remarkable feature of him was that he never sang in Ireland. Really? It was only after he, yeah, it was only after he moved to England that he began singing. It's, 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 it's a strange thing, and it's not the first time, I mean, I can think of other people in Irish music, like Joe Heaney, mm-hmm. great Shadno singer. He never sang till he was about 17 or 18. He went to uh, a fesh, sang there, and then become one of the most famous Shadno singers of his generation. Brian never sang in Ireland. I think, in a way, Ireland came to be sung. When he left and he was thinking back to Ireland, thinking what he'd left, song was a way of registering that. And then, amazingly, he had a very, very good voice and would sing. When I saw him, he would usually sing unaccompanied in the Irish, the many Irish Mm -hmm. music pubs in Leeds, and very good Irish music scene in Leeds. Mm Um, but he also would sing with bands. Um, he had a voice that would dominate yeah. any band, you know. Um, but as I say, from his childhood, nothing. This was entirely, his voice and his singing was entirely um, the gift of exile. That was something from having to leave where he came from that was a good thing. And it's very much the theme of a lot of, the old ballads and songs, and I guess a lot of poetry per se is just loss and distance and lament and nostalgia. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's our stock in trade. It is indeed. Yes. Well, you try, and like for Bernard, hopefully leave something when everything else is gone. You know, um, there's a great poem. I can't remember the name of the person who wrote it. When he talks about when breath becomes air. It's in hmm. this poem where breath, when you're moving air mm-hmm. and it stops and it's just air. Yeah. Um, but in in Ireland, of course, or folk music, an air is a song. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you leave the air and the air is left. Um, my family were Irish, so my poetry heritage is really Irish. Mm-hmm. Big fan of lots of other poetries as well. Yeah. Um, but that's where it came to me from. And the link between song and poetry in Ireland is very strong. Yes. Um, up until very recently, I'm thinking about people like Patrick Cullum, obviously, she moves through the fair, mm-hmm. but also uh, Patrick Kavanagh yeah. on Raglan Road mm-hmm. are using traditional songs to carry their poetry. That, that, that hasn't happened in England so much for a while. Um, uh, but I grew up hearing poems put to music, um, and I suppose my sense of a poem and the trajectory possible with a poem was about the trajectory possible with a song. The ground that you covered in a poem was kind of the ground that you covered in a song. Um, in traditional music, of course, and I got this from English music, the big ballads, yeah. um, people just cut, if they, if they didn't see the point of a verse, they would just cut it. Um, yeah. So you yeah. have this almost a filmic jump yes. cut effect yeah, 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 in yeah. the big ballads, you know. Um, and that moved me, I suppose, towards understanding a link between the technique, you know. Um, but the voice, when you 
I mean, I know lots of poetry isn't designed to be read, um, but for me, you, you sort of go from the page of silence through to the speaking of it, um, and then and you're on the verge of song at that point. You're, you're attending to the musicality available in language, and that there's lots of different songs, lots of different music. But I think that you're on the edge of it always with poetry, you know. And that's that's quite a different tradition, isn't it, than the. I think there's a lot of modern poetry that's really written to be read on a page with the eye. Sure. Yeah. Now, a lot of my poetry, I never read at readings, mm-hmm. you know. And Auden had that division, you know, poems it would never read aloud at any kind of a public event. Um, and that's certainly the case for me too. Um, I try and respond in, in the range of responses, not in a sort of sterile exercise way, but there were certain things. I mean, I have written purely visual poetry for um, an exhibition at Shandy Hall, Mm -hmm. you know, which is just for the eye. Mm -hmm. Literally, nobody could ever read it. It's just shapes on a page and things like that. Um, But I suppose I like the idea that in some poems too, you can invoke music. Mm. And music is closely linked to me too with the white space on the page. Yeah. Um, something is going on in the white space. If you think about W.S. Graham and the way uh, the right margin for him could be the sea coming into the shore, mm-hmm. he he uses line breaks to, to carry forward the sense of the poem, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, this, you know, harnessing uh, silence, um which is not nothingness, you know, it's like tension. Um, I work a lot with musicians of all of all kinds. And the silence before a song happens and the silence after it finishes are not the same thing. Yeah. Before the song happens, there is a thrill. Mm. It's a thrilling silence. Hmm. When the song finishes, it's an echoing silence. Not that there is necessarily echoes in the room, but there are echoes in your mind. Yes. There is a different quality of silence. Um, and the silence and poetry and song, it's like a three-ring circus, you know. For me, I tend to each of those. Wow, I love that, yeah. <laughs> silence, poetry and song, the three-ring circus. And is, is there a different process for you you say that some of the poems you you generally don't read out loud and others you do is that do they come from a different place is there a different writing process uh, not necessarily they sort of end up um if i think about the things i'm doing at the moment some of them might end up readable one of them will uh, one of them certainly won't um another one i think will be um I, one of the things that I'm involved with is the David Oluwale Memorial Association. Mm-hmm. I can't, it's a, a tragic case. If you look up David Oluwale yep. online, you'll get yep. the terrible story, harassed, tortured by Leeds police. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been involved with them. And then I write poems for events. Now, I did write a poem for the installation of his bridge, of the David Oluwale plaque on Leeds Bridge, the city recognising its wrong, you know, big, mm-hmm. big important event. Um, and then that, uh, that plaque was torn down within hours and its replacement was torn down almost as fast. Um, and 
which sounds like a bad thing, but it was actually a sort of publicity bonanza. Mm. You know, everybody wanted to respond. It got on the local national news. The local authority put images of David's plaque everywhere. Mm-hmm. A company volunteered to make stickers, uh, representations of the plaque, which they gave out free. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to a woman at The Guardian about it. And there's a film um, being offered to Leeds Film Festival, which should include that too. Um, so I've written a poem about the paradox. Um, the poet A.E., Irish poet, said, you become like what you hate. And it's like there is a deep truth in that. And the racists and who attempted to um, uh, erase completely David's um, memory turned out to be his greatest publicists. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is right. Suppose what I'm saying is this is a public poem. Yeah. It takes part as a public debate, and that will always be the case. Other poems may end up there or they may end up only making sense on the page. Mm. Um, so I don't really know. I mean, I, I don't know where a poem is going to end up when I start it. Um, so I see as I go along, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so where did you start with this one? Because it, it, was it a commission? Was it, it you, you knew that? No, it, it, it was not a commission in the sense that there was any money. Mm. Um, I was asked to do it, so I did, it was it was yeah. commissioned simply because they wanted a poem as well as the music. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernard was very much uh, liked and respected in the music world, mm-hmm. but in Leeds, um, the Irish community also respect poetry. I've worked yeah. on poetry projects with them as well. I did another poem called uh, Roisin Bourne, which is really. Uh, which means white rose. There's actually a, a song called Roisin Dove, which means my dark rose, which is about Ireland Roisin Bourne, white rose for Yorkshire. And that was about a great Shano singer called Darak O'Cahan, mm-hmm. who, um, Kevin Carson, big fan of his, okay. David Wheatley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, David Wheatley's got a new novel out uh, called Stretto, and um, uh, Darak puts in an appearance there. So I wrote a poem about him, which... Uh, was popular and was made into sort of musical settings. So as part of the range of responses and part of the range of expressing grief at um, Bernard's passing, uh, they wanted a poem. So it was for that, very specifically for that, an event where I was reading the poem with musicians um, uh, on a day, you know, it was like I didn't have, I couldn't muck about with the time. I had yeah. to have, have been ready for a particular <laughs> yeah, day, yeah. you know. It was no, there was no me saying, hang on, I haven't finished it yet, you know. <laughs> and, you just, uh, and then that, you, I'm always worried at times like that. People always say that commissions are bad. People always say that if you had to write for a purpose, it's not as good as the poems where you just dander along country lanes like Wordsworth, you know, and see what happens. Um I don't really believe that. I think very often commissions can be bad, um, but sometimes commissions can actually lead you to write okay poetry. And I think this was okay, despite the fact that it had to fulfil very specific requirements at a very specific timescale. Do you know that's an interesting point? So when, when I did my master's, I looked into research on creativity oh, yeah. and what works and what doesn't. And they said that... One of the big findings is if, you, if you're if you writing from intrinsic motivation, a.k.a. 
for the love of it or the hell of it, mm. that is generally you're going to be more creative than original than an extrinsic motivation like money or you've been commissioned or, or whatever. So they said as a general rule, generally commissions are not as good as the you know words worth wondering mm. about on his own. But apparently there was an interesting subset of commissions that were aligned with the artist's own inclination, or it was a mm. meaningful, it was already a meaningful subject to them, and then, then they were asked, mm. and they said that could even go further than pure intrinsic motivation on its own. So, And clearly this is a commission that meant a lot to you. Yeah, that's that's very interesting to know that that research exists because it's very true. Um, and what I advise people about commissions is make it important for you. Mm. Make the commission important for you. Put yourself into it. Find something in you that it responds to. Um, a quote I really like, uh, which I'm forever coming out with, is from Johnson, Rasselas. Yeah. And he says, nothing can be useless to the poet, Ooh. you know. Um, and one of the many things I like about is, I mean, I, I tend to work with people who, who don't have a lot of money, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. But it's look at things in your life in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, the skills of the poet will allow you to enrich your environment by considering the implications of ordinary things. Um, and that sort of approach I think it could work in certain commissions. Mm. There are, I'm not saying that every commission I've ever written was successful because they weren't. Um, going through, um, choosing for new and selected, some commission programs just, you know, I mean, uh, they will never make any of my books, you know. But sometimes they give you permission to write about something that you might feel awkward at doing, mm. you know. Um, and this time with Bernard's poem, I mean, it's not because I was asked, it's different from me shuffling up at the event and saying to his widow, I wrote this poem about him, you know. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, that that wouldn't I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing that at all. But responding to a direct mm. request, that gave me permission to write to the best of my ability. And so maybe focusing a bit on Bernard's story here. Hmm. So again, maybe for some listeners outside of the UK. So Carrick Fergus is the traditional song. It is. Um, the tune, there is a tune in the back of my mind. We might come on to this when we mm -hmm. talk about how it developed, but Carrick Fergus is a traditional song to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. It was the tune, which is so magnificent and is kind of uh, almost operatic in its sweep, was written by Sean O'Reilly, mm. who was the great figure of the Irish uh, music, traditional music revival, but also in Irish music generally post-war. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote it for a game for a particular event, talking about commissions. Uh, it was a, a concert in the Gaiety in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, so he also wrote music for a film called Misha Era, which means I Am Ireland. Uh, and that's a poem by Patrick Pierce. Mm -hmm. So um, Arida very much uh, took on board himself as the idea of Ireland's national composer. Then, of course, what's happening in the 60s is the North explodes, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Bernard lived in West Belfast 
and a lot of Catholics in particular streets were burned out by Protestant rioters. Right. Very often with police standing by and letting them get on with it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, glass has many meanings in the poem, which we'll probably discuss yeah. more in a minute, but the first glass was all the broken glass in the streets, in uh. the Catholic areas, all the windows put through, very often with petrol bombs following after. Um, and Bernard's family had to move. This was to clear... Uh, areas between the Catholic and Protestant areas. Mm -hmm. you know? So Catholics who would get aging up to the Protestant areas, uh, or if the street was mixed, if there were some Catholics and some Protestants in the streets, the Catholics in that street were driven out. And that's what happened to Bernard's family, as it happened to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and the situation deteriorated dramatically, very quickly. Um, the IRA who had become not exactly dormant, but uh, there was a split. The official IRA were non-violence, Marxist organisation. Mm -hmm. um, but in in the riots and in the air, then you'd say, IRA, I ran away, painted on the walls. And it was like, where are you to defend us? Mm -hmm. Some people were saying this. And this is that was all that was the atmosphere that brought the provisional IRA into being. Um, violence, bombs, guns, and they were well supplied with these, you know. So I remember talking to someone, and Bernard's decision, although he was kind of nationalist in his sympathies, I remember somebody saying in West Belfast at the time, it was almost more dangerous to uh, not be in the province than it was to be in it, you know. Mm -hmm. It was really very, very hard indeed to, st to stand apart from this, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, Kenneth Branagh's film, um, Belfast, recently talks about some of those pressures on the uh, main character. Mm -hmm. um, but they were considerably more for other people. And Bernard left um, in this atmosphere of a society disintegrating. Um, there's a phrase from the Nobel speech by uh, Trimble, David Trimble. Yeah. Um, and that was also in the back of my mind in composing this, where he said that the North, he admitted the North was a cold house for Catholics. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about um, the cold house, in, you know, in the end of the poem. Um, and it was a very, very cold house indeed. Oh. Um, a, if you look at Derry, there's a coat of arms in Derry, it, all, it was all gerrymandered just for votes, but also for housing was the big issue, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and on the Derry coat of arms, there's a skeleton. And as you see, that's a Catholic waiting for a council house, you know. Um, it was, you know, just being inside, just having a house was an incredible achievement. Uh, and very often it didn't happen at all. So if you were driven out of your home, you weren't going to, very quickly in Northern Ireland at the time, get back into another one because council housing uh, tended to go to Protestants and in one notorious occasion, a council house went to the mistress of one of the unionist councillors, you know. Um, so there were dramatically uh, rapid changes in society. The housing executive came in, did wonderful things, um, I'm going on a bit here, I know, but housing was my thing. I worked in homelessness for a long time, and, but that's what Bernard came from, mm. you know. Um, lost his home, came over here, lost his grip 
sometimes sometimes ended up on the street himself. So the inside and the outside, what all of that means, um, having a home in a country, all of that was something that was never clear for him. And in the poem, he is the one who comes to fix the house, isn't he? Yeah, he's our house. Yeah, I'm looking at his windows now. We had problems with our windows, and it's it, the literal occasion. I wanted to choose something that was not grandiose or sentimental. I wanted to use some choose something, and this was what I mean about poetry drawing out the implications of something. He put in a new window for us, um, and I was with him, um, and we were talking when he was doing it. You know, I was watching him. We always used to chat. Um, the shock of when you take out, like not just a window pane, but when you take out the whole window and your house in not the warmest part of the year is exposed to the Leeds wind, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. I, I, you're blowing in unobstructed from Siberia. I used the phrase the cold invaded mm-hmm. my home, and, and clearly that is a got political associations for the British and mm-hmm. Ireland and all the rest of it. But it was really, it really did invade, you know. All of a sudden, when the window comes out as a piece, all of the heat is sucked out of the house, you know. Yeah. Um, and then when he put it back in again, it becomes almost like art. Mm. Also, what um, glass? It's like the glass on the picture, yeah. you know. Yeah. The out, the outside. It's just a picture. It's not real, you know. And the passing glass is a pun because obviously it's it's the song and it's when you say goodbye to someone, but it's also glass that separates yes, you yes. from the reality, you know. And Bernard being separate, you know, the singer, um, the handsome boatman, I should explain, I knew I knew Carrick Fergus from the Dubliners version where, where they say the handsome boatman. Mm-hmm. Um, in Bernard's version, it was the handy boatman. Yeah. So when if you hear him sing online, which is worth doing, slight different to words there, but he was the, the wild Irish rover kind of a person, um, but a very, very cold world to really be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an ordinary, I chose the windows thing because it was an ordinary thing, but the more I thought about glass and all its meanings and what he was doing, um, the implications of it allowed me to register um, the important things that I wanted to say for him and about him. It also made me wonder if there's a, an echo of through a glass darkly. Yeah, yeah. That's always there. Yeah. I, that really haunts me, that phrase. Mm-hmm. I have to say, if you went through my new and selected bands, you'd probably find quite a lot of mm-hmm. uh, uh, where that phrase uh, comes up. Um, I have got used to have a poem called Darkly. I can't remember if I put it in the new and selected. But exactly, you yeah. know, it's what you think you see, but you don't quite. Um, it's a bit like... Plato's cave, you know, you get some kind of an image of something. Um, when I worked in the north of England, I was really fascinated with the Glass Museum in Sunderland, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a new poem coming out in Poetry Wales. This is not just a plug, but it is relevant. <laughs> and when I was a kid, we went to the Isle of Wight, and on the beach it had been struck by lightning, and the lightning turned the beach to glass, that section of beach. Whoa. It's called full guides, mm. um, which, is, which is how you make glass. Mm-hmm. You use sand to yeah, make glass. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I'd never seen as a kid, and it stayed with me all my life, mm. um, uh, uh, such a dramatic change in the nature of something. 
and it was this bit like obsidian, very, very uh, cracked and all the rest of it. You know, I never forgot that. And once again, it was the idea of glass kind of reflecting what's going on, but also being different, you know. Um, it's a bit like, in, excuse me, in Celtic myth, um, water does that. It, water seems to be like your world, but it's another world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go through water and you're in a different place. Um, glass seems to me like that. It doesn't just separate. Um, it changes relationships, you know. Mm. Um, great local poet called um, John Riley, who used to live just up the road from me, murdered in, um, you know, one of the few poets, you know, 1978, terrible loss. But he has lots of poem standing at the window, uh, one about an insect hitting the pane, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't think it's just me. I think poets generally in their relationship to grass and windows is significant, you know. Well, there's Louis McNeese, the snow poem. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, yeah. I passed the house where he wrote that, you know. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Well, and there's also, of course, um, Muldoon's poem about that poem. Oh, yes, that's right. That, that, <laughs> that it says, you know, where McNeese wrote, where that passing house where McNeese wrote uh, roses, or where they say he wrote roses, you know. Right, right. It's very Muldoonian. Yes, it's absolutely. Okay. And then in terms of the form, yeah. Ian, how did that evolve? Was it, I mean, so you've got this, it's, it's a very four square poem. You've got three yeah. quatrains, which make a, a square on the page, a bit like a pane of glass. Yeah, exactly. Was that there from the beginning? Or what? Well, I got a bit of a thing about quatrains, frankly. Um, and, the boxiness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, pan- Pandorama, it runs through the whole thing. Um, partly it comes from uh, something that um, Derek Walcott said. He talked about the basic cube of the poem, you know, um, and that's what, say, a sonnet is basically. It's a box. Mm. Um, my old editor, Don Patterson, said that. Um, and as I, I mean... I'm not a great one for sort of spreading words around on the page, you know. It's like um, I want the poem to be just looked at, almost like a piece of prose. Timothy Donnelly, I like his his uh, verses, the American poet. Um, he does that as well. Um, but the song came in and that framed it, and it wasn't Carrick Fergus. It was a song called Do You Love an Apple, which is about... Um, which you, you can hear online, uh, very well covered by Trina Nigonal in the body band. Do you love an apple? Do you love a pear? Um, and it's about still loving a man for all his faults. Mm. Um, and the rhythms of that to a certain extent, the cadences of that appear in my poem. Um, and then that was really between that shape, trying to suggest windows, and then the cadences of do you love an apple? and Bernard's story, uh, and thinking about glass and its implications, um, that was pretty much got me got me there, really. Well, I think you've got us to a, a kind of, it's delightful, but also heartbreaking as well. And I think, you know, as I said to you earlier, the more I know about the background to this poem, it really feels like there's a lot of hinterland yes, to it. Yes, And when the more I hear about it and then go back and reread it, it's like, oh, right. You know, so words like invaded or or utterly 
apparently in, in Milton, when he, he talks about utter darkness, I was reading the other day, he's aware of the etymology with outer darkness. Yeah. And so that outerness, you know, when you, you want to be in your home and it's utterly, you're, you're outside. It is. And of course, utter has that sense of to speak. Yes. Yes. Of course. You know, that secondary meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, which I like. Um, as you say, there is hinterland, but um, it's a bit like optional hinterland, you know. There's not things happening in the hinterland that you absolutely need to know to get the poem. Um, but if you do know it, I think I hope that when people listen to the, what I've said, they might also uh, look up, listen to Bernard singing, maybe listen to Do You Love an Apple, because I think they will understand something of the phrasing from that. Yeah, I'll make sure we have note uh, a link, to, not only to Bernard, but I'll see if I can get a legal link to Do You Love an Apple, and I'll put that in the show notes if I can. Mm. And I love what you said about the hinterland thing, that it's not, you don't need to know this stuff in order to appreciate the poem or get a lot from it. But a lot of my favorite poems are, you know, you can go back years later and find something else in them. It's mm. like a, yeah. a, a box that you keep opening, and there's there's always something else in it. The box, exactly. That's it. The magic box. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. So maybe we can we can listen to it again and, and savour it one more time. Okay. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. The Parting Grass by Ian Doohig Builder without cards, sweet-voiced, sharp dealer Carrick Fergus Bernard, I'd heard him called first Though not born Bernard, or from Carrick Fergus But a refugee from pogroms in 60s West Belfast Here, relabeled bipolar, his house of no cards fell He couldn't leave his civil war as easily as names too long the handsome boatman under bare poles. He needn't tap the glass to know about the storms. I remember him fixing our front room windows, shuffling decks of glass from struts taking pains. I remember how utterly cold invaded my home until he made it just a picture in its frame again. The Parting Glass by Ian Duhigg is from his new and selected poems, published by Picador in 2021. Ian is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. He worked with homeless people for 15 years before becoming a writer and still works on projects for marginalised groups. He has published seven books of poetry, won the Forward Best Poem Prize once, the National Poetry Competition twice, and received a Chumley Award. His new and selected poems was a Poetry Book Society special commendation, an Irish Times Poetry and a Guardian Poetry Book of the Year, and an Observer Book of the Year for 2021. He co-edited Dovetailing, Gathered Notes, 
the book of a project with artists and Refugee Action Bradford to be published in June 2022. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at a mouthful of air.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at a mouthful of air.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem. <laughs>